This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Virginia 7th District Representative Abigail Spanberger. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. Their plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy, and you can learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Virginia 7th District Representative Abigail Spanberger didn't grow up on a farm and admits to a limited background in agriculture. But as a member of the House Agriculture Committee and chair of the Subcommittee on Conservation and Forestry, her appreciation for farming's contribution to the economy and environmental stewardship has grown substantially. Spanberger knows trade is important to farming and anticipates congressional action this year on USMCA. So I think there's a lot of indicators to show that it will be in 2019. Recently, Chairman Peterson, chairman of the Agriculture Committee, said that he thinks that we will hold a vote on USMCA in November and is most likely, and if not, certainly in December. That is heartening. I have been very active in conversations, both through my um, engagement in the Agriculture Committee in a bipartisan group I'm in called the Problem Solvers, and then also as a freshman member you know, I have taken the opportunity to meet with Ambassador Lighthizer from USTR, from other representatives from USTR, to to talk about where we are with delivering the implementing documents to Congress. You know, currently there's back and forth with a working group and and USTR. Uh, my my efforts to check up on on how that status is going have been consistent and constant. And what I've heard from members of that working group is that they are moving in the right direction. Uh, we also, notably, have had multiple caucus meetings and caucus phone calls uh, related to USMCA. And just this past week, I guess it was Tuesday, we had a caucus-wide phone call where we were talking about USMCA. Uh, the Speaker of the House was, was talking about the status of it. Uh, so I feel like there's every indication that we will be moving forward, certainly by the end of the year. And it's, it's a priority for many of us. You know, uh, USMCA and the trade stability that would come with it, it's not just important for my agricultural communities, which in fact it is, um, but it's really important for small businesses, uh, be they in our rural communities, be they in the suburbs. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce has been very active talking about the benefits this would have to my middle-sized businesses across the district as well. You know, there's and there's specific examples. I, I had a roundtable with a, a group of cattlemen in central Virginia in Louisa County, and we had a really in-depth conversation where they were talking about the different markets where they sell their cattle and their desire to invest in the relationship that comes with building up a new market with Canada, but they're nervous to do it because what does it mean if, if USMCA doesn't go through, if, if that trade stability and that trade certainty doesn't exist? And so there's very real people, and, and I know your listeners know this, who are making decisions or more correctly at times holding off on making decisions because they want to know that that certainty is there, um, and USMCA brings that certainty. 
What's your takeaway of the trade war between the U.S. and China? And is this as much about trade as it is national security? So for, for me and, and my background is in national security. I'm a former CIA officer. I worked undercover uh, at home and abroad focused on counterterrorism and counternuclear proliferation. So that, I usually see most things through a lens of national security. Um, and the challenge that I perceive with the continued trade war, particularly with China, is we have uh, we have created a, a situation that is impacting um, businesses and farms and producers across the United States. Uh, we are losing markets. You know, with, for our soybean farmers here in Central Virginia, even with the payments that we're getting, um, that they're that they're getting to help stabilize their their ability to to not go under, that doesn't impact the fact or change the fact that they're losing their markets and that while China's not buying American soybeans, they're still buying soybeans. They're just going somewhere else. So I think it's creating a significant challenge for us in the global marketplace. I think in a larger sort of strategic element of it is we're, we're designating ourselves potentially as not a reliable trading partner if we, uh, if we are in a place where we're frenetically going to uh, put tariffs on um, some of our closest and, and most reliable trading partners. You know, the national security element of it is we continue to have tremendous, tremendous debt, and we look at the um, the largest foreign holder of U.S. debt is, in fact, China. And so continuing uh, to create an antagonistic relationship with China with no real end goal, I, I think, is, is, is one where we could tighten and improve upon our strategy um, and certainly do so without it impacting the livelihood of so many of our of our producers across the country. One of the things that has bubbled up in headlines is that of Huawei and their development of 5G technology. You have called for here in the US the need for a 5G strategy. That's how right. can how can government and private industry work together to accomplish this task and why is it so important? I have a bill that would require that we create a 5G strategy. When we're looking at the the international challenges and the potential threats that exist with technologies such as 5G being dominated by Chinese companies. The, the threat is this. Huawei has known connections to Chinese military and Chinese intelligence services. If we move to a place where U.S. consumers are reliant upon Chinese technologies, in particular Huawei's uh, 5G technologies, in order to have you know, use of a 5G network in their home, that's potentially putting American consumer data, personal information at risk because we do know of those existing strong relationships between this Chinese company and Chinese Intel services. Um, it's not just a concern that we in the United States have. It's one that is shared by many of our partners and allies uh, throughout the world. And so what my bill would do, and it's a fully bipartisan bill, we introduced it three and three, three Democrats, three Republicans together, it would require that we have a, uh, a strategy for ensuring that not only do we know the threats that exist from foreign producers of, of 5G technology, be they Chinese or elsewhere, but that we also in the United States set up a strategy for how we are going to be a global competitor and how American companies can, can ideally move to the place of dominating on this technology. Um, and throughout history, you know, we have been a technological leader in the world, and that is not just an economic imperative, but it is one of also of our of our national security uh, imperative to our national security as well. You shared a letter with Illinois Congressman Rodney Davis reaching across the aisle 
and calling on appropriators to point more dollars toward rural broadband. So with that, this. Is this a money problem alone with rural broadband, or is this an administrative problem with too many agencies divided but supposedly working on the same problem? So I think it's a little bit of both, actually. I think that it is a money problem where, and I'll, I'll take my district as an example. I have 10 counties in total. Two of them, if you live anywhere in the county, you have easy access to Internet. And I will walk into a meet and greet or an event in one of my suburban counties, and I will say, did you know that just 15 miles down the road, uh, there are kids at the McDonald's doing their homework because they literally can't have Internet access at their home because of where they live? And people are stunned. Um, so I think it's a problem nationwide because there is such a divide. The digital divide already exists, and there isn't even a knowledge uh, for, for many people that what they have at home, what they have come to expect, just doesn't exist. And with, with our you know, beautiful Virginia landscapes, we have a fair amount of people who retire to our rural communities. And I have heard from many, many retirees who have left Washington, D.C. area or, or the Richmond City area, suburban area, bought a home in the country, never knew that the Internet was even an issue. So to answer your question, I think some of it is there isn't the same level of urgency, primarily, I think, in part because the different communities that are impacted um, stretch across such vast landscapes. Um, and, and making the argument that nationwide this is a larger economic challenge um, and should be a priority, just as rural electrification was at the turn of the century, I think is the conversation we should be having. I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that you mentioned the letter that Rodney Davis and I led on. Um, part of it was an, was an educational effort. We did find many, many uh, members of Congress who represent rural communities who were willing to sign on to the letter, but we also endeavored to make sure that people from more populated communities understood why this is such an impactful issue and why communities that don't have the Internet access that some of our more populated and suburban and, and urban communities do, how it is creating this divide um, and, and how it impacts them. So I, I think that it's an issue of money. We need to ensure that we are funding the programs that we know work. The second part of it, which was your question, was, you know, is it too many kind of tapestry-type agencies involved? I think that we could more quickly and more effectively address the issue of bringing broadband Internet to a, to our entire country if we were committed to a more unified plan rather than doing um, a, a piecemeal approach. Piecemeal approach is working when the funding is there for it, but I don't think it's the only way to achieve the goal. And if we did have a broad national consensus that this is a priority for our larger economy, larger security, and larger priorities of growth, then I think that that could be you know, very, very beneficial in how we address this. You know, where does the buck stop? Is it at the FCC desk? Is it the USDA? Where should be the central nucleus of this to bring everyone on board? Because I'm told that the maps that were offered by the FCC, they didn't have a clear handle on who actually had service or not. And that's the challenge, too. The maps aren't correct. So the maps aren't correct. So on paper, some communities don't have Internet. Then, in fact, you know, right next to them, they do. Um, and and it's, it's a little bit like paint by numbers. If you have, in a census tract, access, you they fill in the entire census tract. So there are places where people don't actually have access at their homes if you're there, but on a map it does. So even the full scope of what the problem is isn't something that the federal government has a strong grasp of because these maps aren't correct. There's work being done to improve upon that. You know, USDA has been a really active participant in this, primarily because access to broadband Internet allows our farmers and producers nationwide to use 
state-of-the-art technology that is not just kind of the newest technology, but really vital to their ability to compete economically. Uh, it allows them to use, you know, precision watering, precision application of fertilizers. And so it's cost savings in addition to where they've seen greater outputs and greater yields. It's, it's also been financially beneficial with their, with their bottom line. And so the Department of Agriculture has been strong on this issue because it's vital to our agricultural businesses across the country. Um, but where the buck stops, I mean, I think it's a, it's a continued issue of, of how it is that we build out a strategy. Here in Virginia, it's increasingly getting a lot of attention, which is great from a state perspective. But my concern is that nationwide, if we aren't answering the question that you just asked, where should we really focus our attentions and, and who's ultimately in charge with a strong answer, then we will see communities as they stay left behind. There may be action soon in the House on the Farm Worker Modernization Act. Agriculture yeah. needs a solution for farm workers. Is this the answer? I think it's one of the answers. I certainly think it's the answer for when it comes to agricultural workers. Um, and I'll, I'll say this. It's been incredibly clear to me from my visits across our district that our farmers and producers do not have the workforce that they need. And so I have made uh, dealing with the challenges of immigration um, a, a priority. I visited the border with a bipartisan group of Congress members talking about what is the, what are the issues impacting um, our labor force. And it, it all links together. So in my visits to our uh, our, particularly our greenhouses in the northern portion of the district, they were talking about how they cannot get the workers that they need. And importantly, they don't have seasonal work. Greenhouses work year-round, just as our cattle farms do, just as our dairies do. And so with this effort that we have undertaken in the House of Representatives, we are addressing an element of the greater immigration discussion, and we're doing so by focusing on in agricultural-related jobs. And that's a major, major issue. So the goal here would be to ensure that we have the workforce that our farms need, that we do have an allocation of year-round workers. Again, that's really important within my district. And that we are recognizing that there are jobs that exist throughout our agricultural communities that need to be filled. We need our strong workforce. It is a burden for many of our farmers and producers to apply year after year to bring many of the same employees who they've trained back year after year. So really working to streamline that program so they can get returning workers, so that workers they take the time to train can come back, removing some of the, the red tape and the challenges that exist for those who are employing people, also allowing them to use the E-Verify system so they know that they're hiring individuals in a legal process and, and able to do so. And then also ensure that workers who want to come here and want to work in agriculture have the ability to do that um, and that there are visas that are actually going to meet the needs of our agricultural employers across the country. So you chair the subcommittee on the Ag Committee with regard to conservation and forestry. And I'll mention two plans. One is called the Green New Deal that basically made agriculture a villain with regard yeah. to climate change. And then there's another plan that's being offered by uh, Illinois Congresswoman Bustos called the Rural Green Partnership Plan that shows that agriculture has played a role thus far in successful work toward carbon sequestration and can be part of the solution. From where you sit and what you've learned about agriculture, what's agriculture's role? So Farmers and producers are the first conservationists, right? Because if your water is not clean and your soil is not healthy, 
your outputs are not what they should be or as, as good as they can be. I am completely of the mind that we are doing innovative and fantastic things across this country in the area of conservation, and a lot of those efforts are being led by farmers and producers. So where I have been able to, in my conservation and forestry subcommittee, highlight those successes and highlight those successes direct towards protecting our environment, conserving our resources, I have been excited to do so. And in Virginia, we have a really excellent example. We are in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, and voluntary conservation efforts and practices that have been led by our farm local local producers have led to reductions in soil erosion by 60%. We've seen a tremendous increase in the health of the Chesapeake Bay, bringing oysters that have were near extinction back because the health of that bay is so directly related to the implementation of voluntary conservation practices that our producers have been using throughout Virginia. Um, so it, what I have enjoyed is through that uh, committee, through our hearings, being able to show and demonstrate some of the successes of, of real people, of real farmers across the country. And we've had producers come in from across the country, from California to Iowa to Virginia. And actually, one of my constituents came in and testified before Congress about his use of cover crops, the benefit to his no-till practices, and the benefits to the practices that he's been employing on his farm for a couple of years now. Could you see future programs be more targeted toward carbon sequestration and soil health? Absolutely. And I, I think that the conservation programs that we pursue uh, through the federal government that are voluntary, I, I think making them voluntary uh, is is incredibly important, giving farmers the choice of what programs they do or do not want to join. In my visits across our district, in my conversations with those who have testified before Congress, really in order to get people excited about the voluntary programs is have making sure they hear from their neighbors nearby the, the tremendous benefits. Um, and, and what we're seeing with, be it rotational grazing or be it uh, cover crop usage or no-till practices, you know, these practices have tremendous benefit to overall soil health, um, overall benefit to anti-erosion efforts, uh, which impact um, our efforts to combat pollution, particularly, um, you know, here in Virginia with the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, these, these practices work. They're also beneficial uh, for uh, the producers, so be it a greater output, uh, less dollars spent in fertilizer, um, or a, a higher price of one of the rotational grazing uh, cattle farms in my district, the, the quality of the grass-fed beef that they produce that's, uh, that's grown on, uh, with the rotational grazing practices is, is tremendous, and they're able to charge a premium because the product that they're producing is something that locally, um, and it's a small operation, but locally one that is um, of great interest to local consumers. Um, so I think the benefits that I've heard from producers, you know, within my district and at a national level, those who have come before Congress, speaks to the fact that these practices, while beneficial, tremendously beneficial for our regions, for our larger environment, are in fact also very beneficial for the the producers who engage in them. And for that reason, I think the more people learn about the value and what their uh, counterparts have experienced, the more we're going to see uh, people want to be a part of these voluntary programs. 
Well, Congresswoman Spainberger, we want to thank you very much for your service to this industry and being a voice for agriculture there in Washington and certainly serving on the Agriculture Committee. Thank you for taking time for us for Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have the last word. Well, thank you for the last word. I, I would love for your listeners to know that within this uh, this Congress, we have quite a few new members uh, from rural communities uh, who are serving on the Agriculture Committee and who are passionate about making sure that agriculture and our rural communities are part of every conversation, be it related to national security, be it related to discussions of global climate change, and that we uh, lift up the voices of the producers in our district uh, so that people really understand that our our culture as Americans is based on the history of our farming culture, um, and our economy continues to be strengthened and enabled by our farming communities across the country. And so wherever possible, when we can tell the stories of those we represent, in fact, we are doing so. Um, and at the most simple level, you know, making sure that people recognize that if, if, you know, if they eat in a day, that they're doing so because there's a farmer producer somewhere endeavoring to make that possible. And so where we can ensure that their conversations and their opinions are at the table, we've been active in doing so. So thank you so much for having me on, and I look forward to speaking with you again sometime in the future. Our thanks to Virginia 7th District Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Dalley.